Hello everyone and a very warm welcome to episode two, season two of NEDPRO Global Institute's podcast. My name is Sarah Anderson and I'm part of NEDPRO's operations support team. For those of you who don't know, NEDPRO Global Institute is a multi-award winning, interdisciplinary and international think tank anchored in Cambridge in the UK. The aim of our podcast is to showcase some of the work NEDPRO is doing by speaking to some of its members. We'll speak about research, projects, events, and all things nutrition with people from various backgrounds and disciplines within nutrition and nutrition sites. If you're interested in anything discussed, then please do let us know. You can get in touch with us on social media via at NEDPRO, that's N-N-E-D-P-R-O, or via our website, www.nedpro.org.uk. So moving on, in our last episode, we covered the build up to NEDPRO's eighth International Summit on Nutrition and Health with the overall theme of empowering global nutrition with digital technology. Today, we're joined by some of the team who were instrumental in the success of the summit and are here to provide an overview of the 10 satellite events that culminated in the main summit day held on the 23rd of July. So without further ado, let me welcome our guests. We're joined today by Dr. Brianna Lepre, a dietitian and research fellow based in Australia, Dr. Luke Buckner of the NHS, Sarah Arms, an academic associate officer at NEDPRO, and Professor Shimon Ray, founder and director of NEDPRO. Thank you all for being here today. I'd like to start by asking each of you to give us a quick introduction about who you are and what you do. Shimon, if we can start with you, please. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be in this second edition podcast in 2022. Um, previously, we looked at the prelude to the summit and here we are on the other side. By way of personal introduction, so I'm a licensed medical doctor as well as a registered public health nutritionist and I play the role of executive director as well as chief scientist for the NEDPRO Global Institute, uh, which allows me to bring together interests in human nutrition, public health medicine, and really all things food systems, health systems, and education. Thanks for having me on the podcast. My name is Brianna Lepre. I'm a dietitian and a research fellow based in Australia, and I've been a member of the NEDPRO Global Institute for a number of years. Um, my research focus is around health services and capacity building, particularly with respect to nutrition education. My name is Luke, and thank you for having me on the podcast too. It's a, a pleasure to be joining, particularly on the momentum from the summit. Um, I'm a medical doctor working in the NHS, so the UK healthcare service, currently sort of doing internal medical training, uh, which rotates through a number of departments, but in the near future, we'll be looking to specialize in cardiology. Uh, my interest is really there and it's crossover with nutrition, but also public health. And with NEDPRO, I've worked for the last three or four years now um, on core projects such as our nutrition education for doctors and healthcare professionals, and also um, our mobile teaching kitchen, which originated in India and has now moved to other parts of the world. And my name is Sarah Arms, and I am a registered associate nutritionist and academic officer here at NEPRO. Um, in the context of the summit, I was part of the organising committee, um, where I helped to organise the cardiometabolic satellite event from digital data science to human interventions. 
Thanks, everyone. And thanks so much for agreeing to be here today. It's great to have you all on board. Uh, Shimon, would you like to kick us off with an overview of the uh, summit and an overall outtake or a general response to the event? Thank you, Sarah. So the 2022 summit, um, which uh, really is our eighth one in annual succession since we first started in 2015, uh, brought together over a thousand people from far corners of the world um, over the month of July this year. Uh, we obviously used digital technology to enable this uh, amazing tapestry that was uh, a fully online virtual summit. Uh, and of course, the topic was also relating to digital technology as we considered how these modalities could empower global nutrition. And to do that, we had 10 satellite events followed by a main event, which brought it all together. In these 10 satellite events, we had seven which were different permutations of our 12 regional networks. These regional networks have hubs in 12 countries, but allow us reach into almost 40 to 50 countries across the globe. Um, but the regional networks that we brought together in seven events were Brazil and Mexico in one, uh, the regions of Central, Southeast and East Asia, together with Australia and New Zealand in another, UK and Ireland uh, in another network event, um, and Middle East and Africa at large uh, in an event followed by India and South Asia, the United States and Canada, and uh, parts of Europe spanning from Switzerland to Italy, so including both Mediterranean and non-Mediterranean contributors to our European networks. And all of these regional networks um, took on the challenge of exploring what empowering global nutrition means to them in their regional context and how that can be enhanced with digital technology, particularly following over two years of the pandemic, which of course has brought the world closer together in terms of how we connect digitally, remotely and virtually. And we also had the pleasure of awarding uh, for the first time through our subsidiary, the International Food and Nutrition Trust, um, regional network awards to those who have demonstrated exceptional uh, contributions to volunteering um, in global nutrition um, in one or more forms. And the recognition of volunteers uh, across different regional networks, we feel has really uh, enhanced uh, the conversations around the culture and value of volunteering and the contribution that makes to nutrition uh, and health systems. We also had three dedicated topic-based satellite events, one that considered the sum total of learnings from two and a half years of running the Nutrition and COVID-19 Task Force that we've had the pleasure and privilege to convene. And this task force has produced a plethora of breaking evidence in the context of nutrition and the pandemic, 
in conjunction with our official journal, BMJ Nutrition Prevention and Health. We also had a piece dedicated to the raison d'etre of where NEDPRO came from, and that's medical and healthcare nutrition education, looking back at a decade and a half of insights and also impact, but of course, very importantly, the road ahead. And finally, we had a satellite event also speaking to one of the core interests and competencies within the NEDPRO Global Institute, and that is the management of cardiometabolic disease, uh, looking at this from the perspective of what we can achieve through digital data science, through to human intervention studies, and the overlap of the two. The main event uh, really brought together not only the sum total of insights from the satellites, but also brought uh, key speakers who are pioneering in uh, cutting-edge digital technologies um, at the global interface, uh, be that with uh, organizations like MyFood24, uh, which is really revolutionizing how we utilize dietary assessment to empower global nutrition, uh, or indeed organizations working in the field um, and with marginalized communities using digital technologies such as interactive voice response systems and other means of circumventing literacy barriers when communicating nutrition messaging to global communities and the populations uh, that we all seek to serve. Really, the culmination of all of these uh, has also been um, the pleasant task that we have each year at the summit of recognizing not only achievements across the regional networks, but also achievements within our International Academy of Nutrition Educators, which really oversees the entire summit alongside the NEDPRO Global Institute. And this year we had the pleasure of once again recognizing outstanding achievements across different membership categories of the International Academy, but also bringing in um, trend-setting individuals as honorary fellows and recipients of uh, IAIN awards that recognize a lifetime of excellence. So all in all, a very rich uh, and fruitful summit that once again not only brings people together, but also hearts and minds by way of consensus, uh, building on the summits before it, but also paving the road ahead for the strategic pathway to uh, empowering global nutrition in all its forms. That's great. Uh, thanks, Simone, so much for the, the overview. Uh, you certainly have provided a concise recap for those who weren't able to be there. And uh, later on, I will share how you're able to access the recordings if you would like to, to catch up on any of the events. 
And moving on to Bree, who specializes in medical nutrition education and was a guest speaker at the satellite event on the same topic. Bree, during the event, you shared how the Australia and New Zealand Regional Network has advocated for a more action-oriented approach, as outlined in your opinion piece titled, Now is the Time to Take Action on Nutrition in Medical Education. Could you please tell us why this topic is both relevant and important to you? Absolutely. Thanks, Sarah. Um, So I first got involved with this topic um, during my honours year. Uh, I studied nutrition and dietetics here in Australia. And um, during honours, we were asked to pick a research project. Um, So I picked a project that looked interesting, which was about nutrition education in medicine. Um, And what I found was really startling to me, um, and that was that there's a lack of nutrition education in medical training. Um, And as many of you will know, nutrition is very important to health and well-being. And the person we first turn to when we're sick and usually always go back to is our doctor. But there's a stack of research which shows that um, due to the lack of nutrition education in medical training, doctors might not have the knowledge or the skills to give their patients effective nutrition advice. Um, And they often rely on things like personal experience. Um, Now, I am a dietitian, but this is still relevant to my profession because the more that doctors know, the more they can help the population and also understand when to refer to someone like me. So this topic is important to me because it's a missed opportunity to really improve outcomes for patients and the community. Uh, Luke, do you have anything you would like to add to this? And could we also ask your thoughts on the current state of nutrition education in the medical field and why it is important in the field in particular? Yeah, happy to answer that. I think Bree's summarised things, obviously, from her perspective, more based in Australia, but I think it captures most of the world, to be honest, and particularly the UK. Um, so I, I graduated from medical school back in 2018, uh, which is a, a little time ago now, but not too long ago. But um, my experience was very, very similar. So uh, Brighton, where I studied, actually had gone out of its way to start increasing the nutrition content. And it still was fairly limited, particularly as we see most conditions that come up, particularly in primary care. So high blood pressure, diabetes, type 2 diabetes, etc., high cholesterol, the first line management for all of these things is lifestyle and changing your diet and exercise. And the actual advice we get from that is so limited and putting that into practice then becomes very difficult. So our research, we've published a paper in the UK, Time for Nutrition, and that shows the same thing. There's a lack of training, a lack of confidence, and a recognition that's important from most students and junior doctors. So it it really highlights exactly what Bree is saying, that this is a real opportunity to change health outcomes for patients. Um, Ultimately, we can't refer everyone who has high blood pressure or diabetes to a dietitian. That would be inappropriate and a real stretch on their resources. And there are fantastic opportunities to use uh, digital technology and online resources to help our patients so doctors don't have to know everything. It's about recognizing the importance and upskilling themselves enough to be able to direct people to the right resources and to help interpret that information to their life. So um, yeah, I I think it's a really key uh, element of what we're doing with NEPRO and a really important one to focus on doctors themselves. But also to look at other uh, healthcare professionals as well that we work alongside in the multidisciplinary team. So um, I think there's a, a great opportunity really, both in hospitals, but also particularly in primary care. 
If I can just build on that as well. Um, thanks, Luke. I think a lot of um, the conditions that are seen, particularly in primary care, are also uh, largely preventable. So I think there's a huge opportunity to um, shift the burden of non-communicable diseases or chronic diseases um, that are really stretching out our healthcare system and our, our budgets at the moment as well, particularly in the wake of the COVID um, pandemic. I think when considering the role of medical and healthcare and nutrition education, um, one of the things that we need to remember is the immense quantity of information that is uh, coming onto the digital knowledge highway every second. So it's really uh, quite key to be able to sort the wheat from the chaff, to use that uh, pun really, um, but do that in a way where healthcare professionals can function as the conduits through which we can actually reliably uh, hand information, knowledge and uh, advice to members of the public or patients, indeed the populations that we serve, because uh, left to their own devices, um, really all of this information in the public or population context is entirely open to interpretation and therefore channelizing um, valid and reliable uh, intelligence or advice through healthcare professionals and within that, particularly medical doctors, is absolutely fundamental to developing a uh, pipeline of knowledge to action and one that has not only an impact but the right impact um, at the right time on people in the right circumstances. And really the uh, summit uh, and its uh, medical and healthcare education contingent is a key lever to help remind us um, of that uh, focal role that we have uh, as healthcare professionals, but also as an organization that seeks to empower global nutrition through healthcare professionals. Thanks, Shimon. Um, you, you mentioned the knowledge base, and I was wondering if, if any of you could share what some of the main facilitators and barriers to the implementation of new curriculum recommendations um, are, and um, particularly in relation to nutrition. Yeah, I was, I was just going to sort of capture parts of what Shimon and Bria had said as well, actually, and I think that probably goes into this. Um, so uh, one thing Bria had highlighted is that a lot of doctors' education around nutrition comes from independent reading, and um, hopefully that's done through educational, scientific kind of means, but it may well be that that comes from the media and sort of um, one study that's been blown out of proportion or uh, said that something's not helpful when there's actually a huge body of years of research that says it is. So um, that's a very, for me, a concerning way of educating and for something so core, I think that we should be not, not teaching doctors to be experts in nutrition, but at least teaching them the core elements of nutrition itself but also how to interpret the research and the evidence base that is out there um the barriers to bringing it into the curriculum as mom was saying i think there's a huge amount of knowledge just on nutrition out there but there's also a growing amount of treatments and diseases that we're treating as doctors 
And it's increasingly becoming obvious that we can't keep up with um, being experts or specialists in every field, which used to be a bit more of a generalist approach where people could treat uh, many conditions um, within their sort of field of surgery or medicine. Uh, so people are becoming more and more subspecialized. And I think we have to recognize that um, asking medical schools to fit in yet another big topic is going to be difficult. And that probably will be one of the major barriers uh, is time in the curriculum. And that carries on through into postgraduate training as well, where again, there's a packed amount of information as to what you need to know and what treatments you need to know about. So that to me is one of the biggest barriers. I think Reassuringly for me, actually, there is a appetite for nutrition, it seems. Um, some people have a bit of a throwaway feeling about it that it's not important as doctors. But I'd say overall that is a minority um, and that the rest of doctors do recognize its importance, but they don't necess necessarily know how it fits into their role at the moment. And so I'd say time in training, but also time in your role is another one too. So on the ward, um, as someone that has gone off and had uh, time out of training to study nutrition and done a master's degree and things i've come back and wanted to use that knowledge and um, try and talk to people about diet a lot more but apart from seeking out specific clinics like uh, bariatric weight loss clinics where they're discussing bariatric surgery and seeing diet talked about there there's not often a huge amount of time on the wards to talk about these things. Um, we're running from task to task just to keep things moving within the things that we have to do as doctors, which is prescribing and requesting scans, etc. So I think there's a real need to clarify roles when we're working in the hospital as to what we are going to expect people to do within their profession. And from there, bring it back from those roles into medical schools uh, nursing schools, physios, etc., to think about who's going to um, do those roles and then who's going to be taught about the key elements that will allow them to do that and the key skills uh, to practice that so that they're ready to go when they get started. So for me, that's probably where I would say the barriers are. It's largely time and clarifying around what we expect of people within their profession. Um, so to build on that uh, in an Australian context, I think um, it's quite similar. So one of the biggest barriers previously to the integration of nutrition into medical training was that there wasn't really a consensus on the nutrition knowledge and skills that are relevant to medicine um, in practice. So that was um, a barrier to um, there being a benchmark for curricula. Um, but then on the other side of that, my PhD worked to um, identify that. So to work out what the key nutrition competencies are for the medical profession. Um, and while curriculum crowding or, or there being a lack of time in the curriculum um, is a barrier, what I found is that a lot of the competencies that are relevant to medicine are quite um, lateral and have the potential to be kind of vertically integrated into existing curricula. So you could um, just provide a nutrition context, for example, in curricula rather than adding an entirely new topic. Um, so for example, skills such as the ability to work in a team was particularly important um, and communication skills, which um, you could argue are quite broad medical competencies anyway. So I think there is scope um, to kind of implement nutrition into existing curricula as well. Um, and then building off what, what Luke said as well, doctors are kind of already firefighting the, the symptoms of chronic disease. Um, so I think uh, 
systems and, and resources can also be a barrier more broadly um, to nutrition in healthcare, um, and then kind of a low priority for nutrition in education as well. I think one thing to add to that, Brie, is that, that I would see hopefully changing in the future is if we are having a generation of people that are more interested and going off, even if they're reading themselves, hopefully we'll see students coming into hospitals or to primary care and seeing people beginning to talk about it as doctors and having those role models to base themselves on. And that might filter through back to, um, I remember at medical school doing, like you said, sort of joint sessions with uh, pharmacists and nursing students and talking about how we were going to work together as professions. And actually, why couldn't we have had a, a dietitian student as well in there and talking about diet as part of the management? It, it may well have been quite a good way for students to figure out themselves what roles they're going to have in the future. And I think that obviously can be guided by the professions themselves, but um, for it to begin actually becoming part of their thought process, I think is a, a really good start. And then if they know which resources to go off and use in the future, they don't have to have the whole knowledge base, but they hopefully will have enough information to guide people to the right resources and to help them with that. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, from my own research, we we saw that the role uh, of the medical profession is largely to to coordinate. So, um, having that ability to signpost to evidence based resources or locate them and um, apply that in practice is is really important. I agree. And we don't really know or understand fully the role of um, of role modelling in nutrition education yet. But I think given how central um, supervision and role modelling is to medical training, I think that there's um, scope to explore that further as well. I think um, all of this also speaks to the fact that um, in the work of the Nedford Global Institute and the International Academy of Nutrition Educators, and particularly highlighted each year through the um, rhetoric of successive summits is uh, the role of working in teams, not just multidisciplinary teams, but also interdisciplinary teams. And uh, we're just hearing about, um, from this conversation, for instance, uh, the role of the healthcare professions working together in a multidisciplinary way. But uh, it's also important for us to uh, promulgate interdisciplinarity and do that in a way where those in the health professions are thinking more upstream than simply food choices, nutritional status and health outcomes, but really thinking about the food environment that patients and populations live in, how that food environment is impacted by things like food supply chains, and how in turn those food supply chains are fed, um, to use that pun, by um, a certain nutrient quality um, of what enters the supply. And that, of course, is determined by food production, which is not necessarily governed by uh, envisioning nutrition and health, but rather by economic and political forces. So thinking about some of the modifiable and less modifiable determinants in those upstream elements that actually position individuals and communities in a particular way and uh, very often will nudge their food choices, 
is quite important for all healthcare professionals and particularly medical doctors who tend to be restricted to a more biomedical model as opposed to biopsychosocial, um, I think is really key uh, because uh, otherwise we will continue to um, uh, to use that phrase tinker about um, downstream without recognizing some of those upstream determinants um, and some of the barriers uh, and limitations that we need to guide patients and populations to navigate. I agree, Shimon. And just to quickly build on that as well, I think um, some facilitators in medical education could be firstly into professional education. Um, I'm a huge advocate for that. Um, and then also participatory um, nutrition education or um, service-based opportunities in training where um, hopefully uh, healthcare professionals can get an understanding of the wider determinants of health, which, as you said, um, drive a lot of um, the health inequities that we see today. Yeah, I, I, again, just to add to that, I completely agree. I think one of the major things that puts doctors off is probably the one time they have tried to talk to someone about diet when they've recognized it as most extreme and felt they have to, they probably haven't seen an impact. And I think they then feel that that comes back to either the advice they're giving not being good enough or the person not listening to them. But in reality, it's this massive mix of things and the, the environment people are living as well, driving them into uh, difficult sort of food behaviors and the impacts that has on their health. Um, often the individual can't really change these things necessarily, but it's helping them to navigate those barriers as we were talking about. And I think that's really important to recognize at an early stage and it doesn't just account for diets. I mean, we have people not accessing healthcare appointments, less so in the UK, but elsewhere avoiding healthcare because of the environment people live in, smoking, drinking, there's uh, recreational drugs, there's a huge amount of other things to be aware of that um, aspects of society and where you live uh, comes into it rather than just individual choice and um, the things that come to the front and sort of feel the most obvious when you're interacting with someone. Um, just in the interest of time, uh, Shimon, do you have any last thoughts on, on empowering global nutrition with digital technology? Um, are you able to share any examples of work that's been done to help with the implementation of nutrition education? So digital technology is, as um, was mentioned before, something that has enabled us to remain more connected whilst being remote or virtual and particularly um, highlighted over the pandemic. However, it's still the case that access to uh, online digital technologies um, for many of the populations of the world, particularly those who are in lesser resource settings, remains a challenge. So one of the ways forward is really to use uh, not just digital technology, but other aspects of technology and Again, to be technically accurate, one would include analog technologies in there as well, um, to harness things like mass communications, uh, particularly for messaging using creative means, uh, be that through general media or entertainment, um, but also to harness offline uh, digital technologies, which um, can in fact 
have a profound impact on those communities where there are offline digital communications that are in a closed circuit. Um, and uh, this also includes um, messengers, uh, which very often those with smartphones, even in marginalized communities, might have access to, where there isn't necessarily a continuous online feed of information or advice, but whatever is fed into that sort of closed circuit system usually amplifies and creates uh, uh, an echo chamber effect. So it's very important to create digital assets, knowing that that may happen and thinking about envisioning some of the consequences and impacts, um, particularly in the hardest to reach communities that we serve. And within that, thinking about literacy. So general literacy, uh, of course, um, in its purest sense, um, which we can circumvent barriers um, around by using uh, impactful audiovisual means, but also literacy around health, food and nutrition, which is not necessarily something that even highly literate communities uh, always have, and therefore keeping our messages uh, simple, uh, very visual and easily understandable, as well as uh, messages that are impactful and have uh, a sustained effect. So these are all challenges as well as opportunities on the road ahead to truly empower global nutrition with digital technology, I would say, in all of its forms. As Dom said in the live summit event, we are currently living in the age of digital technology and digital technology like software apps and social media is in many cases advancing health sciences and clinical practice for providers, patients and also for the public. Would you be able to give any examples of how technology is changing nutritional care and practices? So from an Australian perspective, um, we saw the rapid uptake of telehealth, which is quite similar to telemedicine in the UK um, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think um, there's a real opportunity to utilise um, this technology in terms of nutrition care. Um, either for any healthcare professional, um, for example, to provide care to patients, um, to provide nutrition education to patients. But there are also opportunities to use um, this technology to redirect the workforce to rural and remote areas, which would improve access to care, um, which in Australia is uh, quite a big problem as we have a lot of rural and remote um, area um, and also an opportunity for the this technology in, in nutrition education as well, such as to facilitate um, into professional education by bringing people from different geographic areas together um, or even the use of AI in uh, clinical skills training as well. So I think there's a real opportunity for technology to um, to shift nutrition education and uh, care as well. I think um, the way I see it as well and how I personally would find it helpful at the moment is that um, I've, as I said, I'm probably 
had more training in nutrition than many doctors by going out and having um, a master's and things in it. But I still would, I've not seen it in practice as a doctor's role as to what I should be doing. And it's, I think trying to navigate that barrier is uh, difficult in the day-to-day world. And I think technology could be really helpful for that. And in other aspects of medicine where um, we're looking at sort of advice and guidance, there's things like apps that can be a sort of pocket guide for you um, to take away the need for carrying around huge textbooks of information now, just really simplistic, quick points and when to refer. Um, That kind of thing would be really useful, I think, for a doctor to have in their their arsenal of sort of weapons that we can use uh, or tools to have to help us tackle these problems. So that would be one sort of supporting uh, people to put it into practice. Um, An app in the pocket would be really useful for that. And that would carry on the sort of education, hopefully, that would be coming into medical schools and allow people to start putting it into the world rather than having to sit there and think about um, where to go and read about things online or where to pick it up. I think taking the ease out of um, those factors would make a real difference to me in terms of where technology could help. And then the other thing is the time it takes to assess uh, people um, from sort of a dietary perspective. And what I've seen so far from doctors that are able to give some dietary advice, and I know it's probably not perfect, but just trying to get a snippet or a, a snapshot of someone's diet. And I think uh, particularly imagining sort of a GP of a 10-minute appointment, you're not going to be able to take a diet history in a reliable way, I think, in, in that time period. But you could highlight the importance and there could be technology to send someone away to capture that and help begin some basic analysis of themes so that you could recapture some talking points when they next come in to see you and refer on with some information already beginning to be put in place. So there are two factors that I think would be quite useful to start thinking about in healthcare. Um, but I must admit it's it's not really in my role at work as much at the moment. Um, it's something I still try and pick up and do, but it's not routine that I'm using technology myself to analyse diet or to give advice at the moment. Thank, thank you both. It's um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear about you know the opportunities for technologies to shift nutritional uh, care and education, particularly in rural areas. Um, coming from someone based in Africa, <laughs> I'd like to briefly hand over to Sarah Arms, who is instrumental in the organisation of the Cardio Metabolic Disease Digital Data Science to Human Intervention Study Satellite Event. Uh, Sarah is just going to give us a brief overview of the satellite event. Yeah, so um, the penultimate satellite event covered digital data science and human interventions, where we heard from Dr. Adam Strange, who spoke on building holistic view of health. Dr. Christine Delon um, presented her work on investigating cardiometabolic risk factors. And Brian Oak Murphy presented the impact of polyphenols on macro and microvascular circulation. And we also heard from Dr. Ruth Price, who spoke on employing digital data collection systems in human intervention trials. Um, So in this event, we discussed how digital technology is currently being used in many different areas in research, such as apps for dietary assessment or wearables for measures of cardio. Um, metabolic disease Um, but where do you see so this is aimed at Shimon so where do you see digital technology going and what do you think this means for the future of nutrition? So I think that really in digital data science um, 
one of the ways in which we can look at the future is um, individual responsibility for uh, tracking things like diet, uh, activity and lifestyle, really thinking about the sort of four pillars of lifestyle, uh, aside from diet and physical activity, including um, the mind um, and also sleep. Um, so digital wearables or even other manual digital recording systems, uh, as well as the, the many apps and uh, interventions uh, which are uh, digitally or app-based that we have at our disposal, means that we can better govern our um, uh, lifestyle uh, and take individual responsibility. Um, and collectively, what it means is that uh, healthcare delivery systems, which have uh, immensely deep and wide digital databases, um, can use artificial intelligence and algorithms to look at patterns in data, be that at an individual level or at the level of um, a population or patient group, and better tailor uh, interventions uh, and create kind of data-driven solutions which are responsive to changes in digital data trends. During the Marathon of Satellite events and the main event, we heard a lot about the many opportunities and how digital technologies might empower our efforts to improve global nutrition. But what are the challenges that digital technology has created in reaching this goal? One of the challenges that digital technology brings with it, aside from the issue of access, um, is really the issue of digital literacy, um, of the importance of digital uh, training being incorporated into uh, core uh, education, um, and also uh, making enough time and space for digital solutions uh, within systems which may be a little bit more antiquated. And, uh, of course, uh, there's a nice phrase that's used for the current generation that's uh, in school, and they're often referred to as digital natives, um, whereas the rest of us who are getting to grips with it might be termed as digital invaders. But I think it's important to... Uh, learn from the digital natives uh, and really um, think about how to um, integrate digital uh, capabilities within the day-to-day -day routine things that we do, rather than think of this as something that is special and needs to be uh, overlaid uh, over and above the core activities that we're all so used to doing, not necessarily in a digital format. Um, so just to add to that, I think that one of the challenges that digital technology has created in efforts to improve nutrition is that um, there's more information, which is both a good and a bad thing, depending on the source of that information and whether or not it's evidence-based. Um, so from my perspective as as a dietitian, the nutrition space is so busy, very contested already. Um, so I guess the challenge with the digital technology is that um, while it improves access to information, 
my main concern is uh, making sure that that information is reliable and evidence-based, which is, of course, um, the most helpful information to um, the public. Yeah, and actually that was pretty much along the lines of what I was about to say. I think um, as a doctor that has an interest in nutrition and then goes sort of into that realm to read, there is a massive information out there now online with multiple journals and then you start going on to things like social media and those journals might suddenly be misinterpreted and captured in a slightly different way and people's uh, communication of the results might be exaggerated or inhibited or in whichever way they interpret it but you just see information being um put out constantly and it's so much to keep up with so that's one of the reasons earlier on i was speaking about um training doctors in interpreting nutrition research i think that's actually really important and having a nuanced sort of review of the evidence yourself and coming to an opinion alongside guidelines and things where there's more of a consensus view on things um that's really important and then the last fact i'd say is on social media attention span is much less than i think we're used to when someone sat in front of us in a doctor's appointment even if we've got 10 minutes they usually will focus on you for that 10 minutes um on instagram or twitter or facebook or whatever you're using as your social media you've probably got less than a minute to get someone's attention and get a message across so you have to take that decades worth of research and uh, put it across in 30 seconds which is very difficult to do um, in detail but it's about really getting those impactful key messages across in a way that someone can actually make a change and i think they're the two factors that i'd see as big barriers at the moment to healthcare and unfortunately the people that communicate things well at the moment often don't necessarily have the evidence or knowledge behind them and it becomes uh hard to stop the momentum that they gather from these things yeah thanks luke i think you know coming from a non-medical non-nutrition background myself uh there is so much information um shared on on these social media platforms and um it's hard to actually uh figure out what is what is true and what is false so perhaps another challenge um that needs to be overcome Okay, so time to wrap up this episode of NEDPRO Global Institute's podcast. In the quickest possible recap of the summit, we shared over 15 hours of engaging content supplemented with interesting presentations by our keynote speakers and interactive panel discussions. We learned more about our regional networks and how digital technology already plays an important role in nutrition, as well as where there's room for growth. And we were joined by over 230 registrants from over 20 countries. If you weren't able to join us for the summit, you can find the recordings of all the events on our virtual learning environment, which is easily accessible via our website, www.nedpro.org.uk, and you can click on the events tab. On behalf of all of us at NEDPRO, we would like to extend a huge thank you to everyone who contributed to the successful event, as well as to those who joined us from all across the globe. And lastly, a huge thank you uh, to Bree, Luke, Sarah and Shimon for joining us on this podcast today. Your thoughts and insights on the topic of nutrition are certainly much appreciated. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah, and a special shout out to the Summit 22 Organising Committee um, and the lead organiser, Dr. Dominic Crockholm, um, and all of those who contributed so generously with their knowledge and insights. Thanks, everyone. Bye.